good evening, you magnificent geeky people. Reggie here once again for another hour of geeky news, views and reviews. And another huge, huge welcome to all the people who joined us last week for the first time because they'd heard us on Apero Time on Harrogate Community Radio and who've come back. Wow. That shows poor judgment. Mm, not sure. But you're welcome. You're very, very, very welcome. And I am immensely, immensely flattered that anybody would listen to my rambling nonsense more than once. We have got another packed show for you this evening uh, with news of Thought Bubble and news generally. Um, rather more time than I would have liked spent focused on Twitter, if I'm honest. But, you know, there you go. There's a lot happening. And so I guess... We will get straight on with the news. This news really changes everything. Okay, where to start? Um, shall we do Elon Musk? Shall we? Because he's been in the news again, and it's really getting quite musky around here. So, actually... Where to start with Elon? Well, where to start with Elon Musk? That's a really big question. Where to start with Elon Musk being in the news recently? Let's do that. Right. OK, let's do that. So let's start with Twitter, the decline of which is interesting from the point of view of what can happen with social media when it's not cared for, I guess, is the word. Uh, is it? Is it right that he's not caring for Twitter? I don't know. He certainly cares about Twitter a lot. He always did. Um, okay. Some statistics have been released which tell us a lot about, A, the way Musk is using Twitter, uh, which is, from a geeky point of view, interesting only because Musk is, at very, the very least, geek adjacent. And um, also to do with the performance of Twitter in terms of how well it's performing. Uh, which are all, um, well, there's a reason Sad Spock was opening the news segment this week. Basically, if you take X, X's, let's call it X, because uh, let's be honest, Twitter died a while ago. If you take X's September web traffic and compare it to the previous September, September 2022, there is a 96% traffic bump in Elon Musk's profile on posts. Now, there's no reason for that unless either he is posting a shed load more than he was posting before, which is entirely possible. He does seem to be vaguely omnipresent over there these days. Uh, or something is happening with the algorithm to really, really push whatever Musk is tweeting. Now, that makes a deal of sense. Uh, and I'm not even sure I'm criticising Musk here, to be honest. If I owned Twitter, I would probably push my own posts too. But 96%? That's a lot. Anyway, um, what is important in terms of the health of Twitter as a platform are the following. There has been a 14% drop in global web traffic to Twitter.com. So 14% fewer people are currently going to Twitter than they were in September 2022. That's that's a sizable chunk, but it's not life-threatening. 
And Twitter was a big platform in the first place. Not as big, perhaps, as people thought, but still. Twitter was a big platform in the, in the first place. 14%, 86% of people who, was, who were going to Twitter are still going. That's not catastrophic. It's not great, but it's not catastrophic. However, there has been a... Let me just check my notes. 16.5% drop in the volume of web traffic globally that's going to ad.twitter.com for advertisers. That's a lot. And there's been a 19% drop in US web traffic to twitter.com. Um, now, US accounts um, are about a quarter of the site's web traffic. So the fact that that's a big, big number tells us a lot. Uh, there's been an 11.6% drop in UK web traffic, uh, which, you know, that's, a, that's again, a sizable chunk. There's a 17.5% drop in Australian web traffic to Twitter. Um, there's been a 17.8% drop in mobile web traffic to the X app based on monthly active users for iOS and Android in the US. That is US specific, but it's still a biggish number. And there's been a 14%, uh, well, 14.8%, nearly 15% drop in mobile web traffic to the X app based on monthly active users for iOS and Android worldwide. These are large-ish numbers. Now, it does show that the biggest numbers, the biggest exodus from Twitter has been amongst the US and UK users. But the US and UK were the biggest users of Twitter. So we're talking, you know, in terms of numbers, in terms of lost users, these are big-ish numbers. Now, what what these figures don't show us is whether this is a one-off, whether this is a trend. Um, what it suggests, particularly the advertising figures, suggests that people are simply not going to put their money towards Twitter anymore. If you've got advertising budget, people are taking that advertising budget somewhere else. Where else doesn't matter, actually, from the point of view of the survival of Twitter. Now, I suppose the question is, does this matter? And actually, no. From the point of view of whether Twitter can continue to exist or not, it doesn't matter a jot. Because Twitter isn't a publicly traded company anymore. It is owned wholly by Elon Musk. If Elon wants to continue for there to be Twitter, Twitter can continue. There are no shareholders to pacify here. So... Now, from that point of view, it doesn't matter. Where it matters is Musk seems completely fixated on whether Twitter is or is not making money. And for that reason, is hurting Musk, at least in the ego, which, you know, I'm sanguine about. But, you know, still, I think where it also matters is it says something about the credibility of the place. Now, this is entirely reputational. It doesn't actually matter. But I think if you look at Twitter and you see that people are leaving in droves, that's going to make people less likely to use Twitter. And it's not the only bad news that there is for Twitter over the last week or so. First, 
There was suggest- the suggestion a couple of weeks ago that Musk is going to start charging people to use Twitter. Um, now, I have no feelings on this either way. I haven't dis- you know, completely shut down the account that, that Desti's had with Twitter. It is now dormant. We aren't using it. If it started to cost us money for it being there, it simply wouldn't, and we wouldn't miss it, and that would be fine. I actually also don't think that a pay-to-use social media platform is necessarily a bad thing in principle for reasons that we may not get into today, but we'll almost certainly come back to at some point. Uh, That said, would I want to give a site like Twitter my payment or bank information no no please don't do that please 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 this isn't isn't even an an anti-musk thing please do not if the opportunity should arise give your financial information to twitter i don't believe for a second that's a site that is safe or secure we know the number of people who have been fired or who have quit from Twitter. No one has their hand on the tiller here. No one is looking at how to keep that site safe. Do not put sensitive information anywhere into Twitter. This is advice. Okay, I am not an IT professional. You are free to ignore my advice. You haven't asked for my advice, but if you were to ask for it, there are many places I will happily put my financial information on the internet. Many of them are places operated by people I do not like very much. But I at least trust that they will be secure. Twitter? (laughs) Not so much. So there's that. First of all, there's that. I think a lot of people would dump Twitter instantly if they had to pay for it. Obviously, were Musk to go this route, there are clearly quite a lot of people who very much disagree with my stance on giving Twitter their payment information, because there are an awful lot of people who appear to be paying for blue check marks, which I find baffling, but there you go. If that's how you want to use your money, I got no beef with you. But potentially, that could be another bit of bad news for Twitter users and Twitter itself. Then there's the EU. Now, you may be thinking, what exactly does the EU have to do with the UK Twitter experience? After all, We are no longer members of the EU. Shame, but true. And uh, in any case, Twitter is an American company. And so surely it's not subject to EU rules. (laughs) Well, as many people have found out, the reach of the EU is in fact very long indeed. And the truth is, if you want to operate in in EU countries, you have to comply with EU law. And Twitter does operate, currently at least, in a lot of EU countries. Now, we all know what the EU's like. Just perniciously interfering in every little thing, like making sure that people tell the truth and don't spread dangerous misinformation. We all know that the world would be significantly better if people were in fact allowed to do exactly that and say any old thing they wanted about any old body. But in the EU, at least, you can't do that. What you say doesn't necessarily have to be true, but it does have to be not dangerous misinformation. And this is proving problematic for Twitter, where Elon Musk, as a free speech absolutist, has kind of made sure that anyone can indeed say anything they like 
as long as he agrees with it. Which means there has been a massive rise in anti-Semitism. There's been a massive rise in misinformation about the war in Ukraine. There's been a massive rise in misinformation about the situation in Israel and Palestine. And there's been a massive rise in anti-science disinformation, anti-vaccine disinformation, and so on, and so on, and so on. And, you know, whilst accepting that sometimes there are two sides to an argument, and sometimes it is a matter of differing opinions, often it is not. Often there are genuine, demonstrable, provable facts. And the rules in the EU... Basically, they weren't even rules. The EU had a voluntary scheme for social media people to be part of in order to clamp down on the spread of disinformation. And Twitter pulled out of it a while ago because, well, you know, again, it's tempting. It's so tempting to paint Musk as a just a straightforward Bond villain type here uh, and suggest that Twitter under Musk doesn't see the need to avoid spreading misinformation because he quite likes misinformation that he that he agrees with. Uh, but actually, it, it may not be just that. Uh, I think it might also be that there simply aren't enough people employed by Twitter anymore to to keep a handle on the amount of disinformation that is spreading on Twitter. Particularly because one of the first things Musk did was let back on all the people who'd been kicked off for spreading misinformation. This is a problem that created itself, and I don't know how Twitter now can deal with it. But they're going to have to, because the EU has Twitter very firmly in its sights. And if Twitter wants to continue to be able to operate legally within the EU, it's going to need to do something. Now. Obviously, the easy thing for Musk to do here would be to pack up his bat and ball and take his social media platform home and simply say, OK, we're going to make Twitter not available within the EU. That's within both his power and his right. He could do that if he doesn't want to work under the, the constraints, as he would see them, of EU regulation. He can simply leave the EU, except he can't because he still entertains ideas about actually making money with Twitter through advertising. And if you walk away from so many users, that's going to be a more difficult proposition. Advertisers who are already not falling over themselves to advertise on Twitter are going to be significantly less likely to want to reach Twitter users when they're not in so many important markets. At least nothing else is going wrong. Oh, except that Musk has made an idiot of himself online again by um, questioning the financial propriety of Wikipedia, of all things. Uh, now, this comes in a response from Musk to a tweet from Jimmy Wales, the guy behind Wikipedia, who was basically saying... Wikipedia is not for sale. We are not selling Wikipedia. But in order for Wikipedia to function, we need to raise some money. And Elon Musk tweeted, and I'm quoting now. 
Have you ever wondered why the Wikimedia Foundation wants so much money? It certainly isn't needed to operate Wikipedia. You can literally fit a copy of the entire text on your phone. So, what's the money for? Inquiring minds want to know. And Twitter users told him. Uh, basically, they responded to the insinuation that... Um, that I, I think that's a fairly clear insinuation that there is some financial impropriety or at least some, you know, feathering of people's own nests going on at Wikimedia. I, that's that's the clear implication of that inquiring mind want to know what's the money for. Hey, hey, hey. Um, well, you know, they pointed out, well, actually, if inquiring minds want to know, inquiring minds can find out because Wikimedia is registered in the US as a non-profit organisation, which means its accounts have got to be transparent and publicly available. And, you know, so if Musk really wants to know, he can just look it up, perhaps on Wikipedia. Why am I having such a massive go at Twitter again? Uh, well, partly because it's fun, but actually, no, genuinely, mostly because this is a thing that is happening in the world of geek. And it, it's impossible to overstate how important Twitter was, even 18 months ago. I mean, yes, it was always a hell site. Yes, if you were, you were always likely to find um, all of the isms and all of the obias if you went if you went looking for them, and even if you didn't, you know th there was a fair amount of racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, all of that it was always there. What's happened now, though, is that all the good things about Twitter, at least from the point of view of all the people I know, which is an unrepresentative group statistically, perhaps, but still. Um, all of the good things have gone away and all of the bad things have been amplified. And this appears to have happened because Elon Musk paid $44 billion in order to take control of something he didn't understand. And I find that fascinating. And I find Musk fascinating because we all thought he was one of us. We all thought he was a geek. And... I'm not sure he is. If he is, I think he's therefore an object warning. Uh, you know, this this is what happens when geeks lose control. But OK, we're going to call the news there. Other stuff has happened. It may appear in different segments. Uh, but honestly, 17 minutes and 31 seconds on Twitter is 17 minutes and 31 seconds too long. And yes, yes, I can already... See the emails that you're all about to send in my mind. Then why did I spend 17 minutes and 31 seconds talking about it? Uh, oh, because it's fascinating. It's just fascinating. To me at least. And it's my show. So there you go. And in a perfect world, the news would have finished there. But it isn't going to. Everything you've heard up until now was recorded. Oh, was it Monday or Tuesday? But now it's Thursday, the 26th of October. Uh, it's just gone 10 past three, which means I am going to be very late posting this. But I should just about squeak under the wire. And there's been some breaking news. First of all, I need to contain my excitement just a little bit. But we have got an announcement for the air dates of the Doctor Who anniversary specials the 60th anniversary specials of doctor who and now i understand why they're not putting the first special out on the 23rd of november 
That would be the 60th anniversary of the whole thing. It would be the 60th anniversary anniversary of the first episode airing. But it would also be a Thursday night. And I get why the BBC has decided not to air the thing on a Thursday night. People have things to do. It's a school night. So they're moving it to the 25th of November, which is the closest Saturday to the actual 60th anniversary. And so the Star Beast, which is the first of the three specials featuring David Tennant as the 14th Doctor and Catherine Tate as Donna Noble, will air on Saturday the 25th of November, which is my birthday! Not only is my birthday on a Saturday this year, but for goodness sake, new Doctor Who. Thank you, BBC. <sighs> Sorry, I told you I was excited. Didn't I say? I did say. So that's all very exciting and I'm very, very happy. And I, I do feel it was important to interrupt your previously scheduled broadcasting to tell you that news. Uh, just a couple of other things that I'm going to drop into the news section since I'm here. Um, first of all, Something that I am going to take to be really positive AI news in that it's something that might actually stop the use of AI in the theft of art and not literature yet, but certainly art. What's happening at the moment with generative AI is that it's scraping the Internet for images, which it then aggregates without permission or remuneration or concern, really, for the people who created those images and whose copyrighted material they are, and then uses those images to create pretty pictures for talentless people. And sorry if you're somebody who makes AI art and thinks you're clever. It's not art, and you're not clever. Okay, there's a very clear editorial line on this. Now, what's happened over the last few weeks is that a number of things have happened that have started to stem the tide of the mass theft of artwork in order to create AI pictures. The first is that courts in the US have ruled that anything created by AI is not copyrightable, which means that there's no incentive now for big business to get involved with AI. About the most that they can do with AI now to, you know, shaft the little guy is they can still use AI to create first drafts of things and then get writers in to clean it up. That would then be copyrightable because a human would have touched it. I hope I haven't read the Writers Guild of America settlement yet uh, properly, but I hope that there's something in the Writers Guild agreement the end of the the the, the uh, WGA strike that will stop that happening. What that hasn't done is help artists in any way. The aggregators can still scrape everything and create images, and there's there's not a lot that artists have been able to do about that up until this point. However, technology always turns up something. Basically, a a, a tool, a digital tool, has been developed called Nightshade. Uh, which is intended to fight back against companies that are using artists' work to train their models without creator consent. Basically, this will enable the 
owners and the creators of imagery to, in air quotes, poison the data that's being used to train the AI and damage future iterations of generating uh, image generating AI models. So, you know, the likes of um, DALI and Midjourney and Stable Diffusion by just making that output useless. So um, instead of, you know, you, you if you prompt it to make a car, it'll draw you a cow. If you prompt it to make a cat, it'll do you a dog and so on and so on and so on. Um, the research has now been submitted for peer review uh, at the security conference uh, Usenix. And I have high hopes for this. Admittedly, what is likely to happen is that this will start an arms race now between the people who want to be able to steal people's artwork and the people who want to stop people stealing people's artwork. But at least there is an arms race now, which means it's going to get more bothersome and more expensive to steal people's stuff. And because of that, the big companies, at least, are less likely to do it. It's going to be less profitable. Now, if that means there's the odd scammer on the side, well, that's an issue, but it is a less big issue. And so hopefully what we'll be left with is hobby users, people who just want to make images for themselves. And I've no problem with that. If you're not profiting off it and you're not distributing it, that's fine. If you want to make a nice picture for your own wall, you, you do you. I, I don't have a problem with that. The problem comes when you try and profit off other people's labour, which I'm not a big fan of. I don't know whether that's come across or not. Uh, so that's that. Now, I, I am really I, I don't have any more information on it than that. This is literally breaking news. It's coming across my desk. Well, it actually came across my desk yesterday, but yesterday was a Wednesday and Wednesday's a, Wednesday's a manic in my world. So well, I've not had a chance to look at it any more deeply than that. You can probably expect some more information on that in the next few weeks. And so I guess, I guess we'll probably just wrap the news there. Yeah. Yeah, let's do that. Oh, no, one more thing. Um, we've not talked about self-driving cars for a bit, and there's been an issue. There was a company called Cruise, which was operating self-driving rideshare vehicles in California. And uh, there have been some accidents, and their license has effectively been pulled. So the whole self-driving car revolution appears to have stalled, at least for now. Uh, again, I don't have a huge amount of detail on that. It's literally breaking news as I'm talking to you. So um, more next week, probably. OK, now we really are going to knock the news on the head because it's taken nearly half the show. Huh, OK, on to pleasant things now, because we're very nearly into November. Halloween is upon us, and uh, that can only mean one thing. Thought Bubble. Now, there's a couple of weeks as you listen to this before Thought Bubble happens, but I can tell you that I, speaking personally, am in a bit of a frenzy. Personal reasons are taking me away from Harrogate in the immediate run-up to Thought Bubble, which means I'm going to be um, more stressed than usual. I think it's fair to say, when the big weekend comes. And much as I love the big weekend, that's going to be really flipping stressful. But why? What is it about Thought Bubble that matters so much? Well, first of all, 
this is when literally all my friends come to my town. The whole of the UK comic scene, pretty much, will be in Harrogate for that weekend. There's some pressure there, a little, you know? Because I love Harrogate, and I want my friends to like it. And so I'm always just a little bit on edge in case something bad happens to any of them. So, you know, there's that. But there's also a huge amount of organisation involved, particularly this year, because I'm doing a thing. Back in the before times, pre-pandemic, when Harrogate hosted Thoughtball for the first time back in November 2019, I organised a sort of art trail around Harrogate. I, I got people to loan me their comic art and I put it in various places around the town and put a little map together so that people could go around Harrogate and not just see the art, but also, you know, experience Harrogate and perhaps shop in some of its small businesses, cafes and restaurants and that kind of thing. And then and then the pandemic happened and in 2020 Thought Bubble didn't happen physically at all. It was online. And then in 2021 and 2022 it was here. And I meant to do stuff and I just never got around to it. Well this year I initially was going to do the art trail again. But it very quickly became pretty evident that I was not going to be able to put the time in that was required. So showing a level of maturity and self-awareness, which my friends will tell you is entirely uncharacteristic for me, I decided not to do that. And instead, I thought, well, I won't do anything. But then I was contacted by the awesome, awesome, awesome Rachel Smith, who, if you are unfamiliar with her work, is a cartoonist, one of my very, very favourite. Now. Rachel is perhaps best known for her quarantine comics, which was a series of comics that she put out pretty much, not quite, but pretty much every day during certainly the first lockdown. Regular long time listeners to the show will remember Rachel Smith. She's been on the show before and uh, you know how much I love her work. I believe I called her the peeps of the pandemic when I interviewed her last, which she thought was appalling and I thought was hilarious and clever, I thought. Uh, anyway, the reason I called her that is Rachel's work is mainly, not entirely, but mainly autobiographical. And Quarantine Comics was very much about her experience of living through the pandemic as somebody who lived on her own, who was not able to see her boyfriend during you know lockdown and stuff, and just, you know, how she got through it. I thought it was incredibly relatable stuff. Well, since then, she's definitely seen a boyfriend because they have a child. And, I mean, I wouldn't know this because I am entirely child-free. But I am told that having a child is perhaps the greatest change that anyone can experience in their life. I'm prepared to believe that. It seems like a lot of work, frankly, to me. And, of course, Rachel Smith has once again taken up her pen to chronicle life as a new parent in a yeah well, it's not daily now I think I think the first few were daily I don't think it's daily now anyway in a series called nap comics so called because when her little boy is napping she gets time to make a short usually four panels or so cartoon about something that she's experienced in relation to life as a new young parent. 
And do you know what? Even though I have no children, I found the whole thing incredibly relatable because I can imagine what my life would be like if I was responsible for a tiny little life. And I, I, I understand exactly what my insecurities would be. Turns out I'm not special. And so I, I think that Rachel's comics, as ever, will be extremely relatable to pretty much everybody. So when she approached me and said, I'd quite like to do a little exhibition during Thought Bubble. Can you suggest a venue? I thought, hmm, do I know anybody who owns a shop in Harrow? Oh, hello. And so Destination Venus will be hosting a small exhibition, about 25 pieces of Rachel Smith's original work, original artwork for Nap Comics, which will be up in the shop for anyone to see. No purchase necessary. Do come along. We are under the stairs of the Everyman Cinema. We couldn't keep you out even if you wanted to, frankly. From the Friday the 10th of November, which is the Friday before Thought Bubble, the evening before Thought Bubble. And uh, because Rachel is significantly braver than I am, she also suggested that we do a little sort of Q&A, a little interview thing uh, around about seven o'clock in the evening to sort of launch the exhibition. And um, since the Everyman very handily has a bar, uh, you know, the opportunity to um, enjoy a suitably appropriate beverage. I have to say the Everyman does the most astonishing milkshakes. I mean, they do beer and wine and stuff, but, you know, milkshakes very much where it's at, I think. Anyway, so that's happening. And I'm, I'm excited about that. I'm also nervous as heck because I'm doing the interviewing. And although I have done that, um, it's it's live. There'll be people. Normally I hide behind a microphone. So, you know, you're all invited, frankly. Come along. Uh, there is uh, Vice Press are doing a um, an event at the Everyman on the same evening, which you might want to get tickets for. I believe uh, they might well be showing Batman Returns. I should really have checked that before recording this segment, but I can't because the information about Friday night is not on the festival website and I am not currently in the shop, so I can't go upstairs and ask the folk at the Everyman. But it's something like that. And from there, there is a weekend that is literally crammed full of greatness. Yes, the convention will have hundreds, and I do mean hundreds, of stands featuring people who are selling comics, making comics, doing art, all that stuff. But also, there will be a graphic novel reading room available on Saturday and Sunday between 10 and 5 p.m. Uh, so uh, just a, a place to retreat if you're finding all a bit much and just check out hundreds of comics. Just wander in, have a look. It'll be quiet, it'll be, it'll be relaxing. Uh, and most importantly, it will be full of comics. If you want to be even more relaxed, uh, on November the 11th and November the 12th, uh, there will be a thing, an exhibition called Lullabies in Lockdown, curated by Beth Dugalby. Uh, this is a group illustration exhibition which showcases work of several local, national and international artists with experience related to new parenthood during the COVID pandemic. And that ties neatly into nap comics, I think. Uh, then there is, of course, the Thought Bubble Kids Zone, uh, open Saturday and Sunday, 
Uh, with so much happening, if you go into the kids' zone, uh, which is in the uh, Bubble Boy Hall, uh, which is obviously part of Thought Bubble, uh, you can check out the activities and all of that stuff, badge making, face painting, mask making, everything to keep your kids entertained. If you find all of that too much, Bub's Lounge exists. Uh, that's somewhere that's just going to be quiet all the time. So if you're finding the cut and thrust of the convention halls a little bit much, you can just take some time out. Uh, then there's a, there's another uh, an art an exhibition uh, called Look Here Upon This Picture, uh, artworks inspired by the first folio of Shakespeare's plays, which I am fantastically interested in. Um, then there's Comics and Chaos Kids Workshop uh, with um, cartoonist Mark Jackson from The Beano um, and The Phoenix. Uh, a fun-packed hour of felt-pen-based frivolity, uh, which is taking place on the Saturday between 11 and 12 in the workshop room in the Queen's Suite. You can find all these. You know, where these places are, just go to the con, go into the, go into the convention centre. There'll be a map. Also, look for people in red T-shirts. They will happily show you where to go. Um... If you actually want to get into comics professionally, the 2000 AD Writer Talent Search is definitely for you. Uh, 11 o'clock on Saturday in uh, panel room one in Queen's Suite. Uh, join aspiring comic writers and make your own pitch 2000 AD. The prize for the best pitch is paid work in 2000 AD. That's paid work. You will be a comics professional if you win this. Uh, then there's a panel... All manner of panels, from the best thing I read all year to um, from pitch to the page, uh, web comics, um, imagery. Uh, there's a spotlight on Jason Aaron, who's been working in comics for a quarter of a century, uh, perhaps best known to most people for his work on the Star Wars comics. Uh, the, the Scarborough Zine Library will be there with a workshop on making zines, and so much. So there's so much stuff. I, I haven't even scratched the surface yet. I haven't even scrolled down as far as Sunday. Uh, if you want to know what's happening, just go to www.thoughtbubblefestival.com. Uh, all the information about what's happening over the weekend can be found there. Um, and I don't want to dwell anymore on, on actually what's happening. What I want to dwell on is why the weekend is such an incredible thing that you should Celebrate and cherish and nurture and support and enjoy and experience. Because it really is something special, is Thought Bubble. I've been to a lot of comic conventions in my time. And I've been to a lot of comic conventions that I have loved. The old UK comic art conventions in London. The Bristol Comic Festival, which was the place to hang out. And perhaps the closest thing to Thought Bubble that there's been until Thought Bubble existed. And now... Now there's Thought Bubble, and it's impossible, really, until you've experienced it, to, to explain just how special Thought Bubble is. It's an incredible experience to be part of Thought Bubble. This is a convention that has grown organically over a couple of decades now. I actually genuinely can never remember when the first Thought Bubble was, but it was in Leeds Town Hall, and it was tiny. And then it expanded into New Dock Hall, which is bigger. And then it overflowed into 
the Royal Armouries exhibition space, which is opposite. It's, it's, it's on the other side of a sort of huge plaza from New Dark Core. And so it was in both places. And then it was too big even for that. And so they built a, mar- a massive marquee in the middle of the plaza. Well, it took up the whole of the plaza, really, between the Royal Armouries and New Dock. And it was in all three places. And then it was too big even for that. And so it moved into central Leeds and it took up the whole of Millennium Square and the town hall. And it was in the museum. And it was in the art gallery. And there was a, a marquee over Cookridge Street. And there was a marquee in front of the art gallery. And still it grew and it grew and it grew until the convention centre in Harrogate was the only venue in Yorkshire big enough to house the colossus that Thorbel has become. And when I say it's a colossus, I really do mean that in a good way, because Thought Bubble is not just a massive opportunity to sell people tat. Thought Bubble has always been, no matter how big it gets, it always is oversubscribed. There are always a lot more people who want to exhibit than they have space for, even now. That means that everything is carefully curated, partly for quality, but also to make sure that there is a good range of stuff. You will not find stall after stall after stall of people doing the same thing at Thought Bubble. You will find people doing an incredible variety of stuff. People who make comics. People who teach people how to make comics. People who draw. People who paint. People who print. Writers. Artists. Writers and artists. And every kind of storytelling you can imagine. Every kind of story you could possibly wish to experience. Everything is there. And it turns out, When you put that much creativity and that many enthusiastic people into one space, what you get is something overwhelmingly positive. You walk into a thought bubble and this is not hyper, I promise you this is not hyperbole. You walk into thought bubble and you, you wall in, you walk into a wall of happiness and joy. Because everybody there is there for the same reason. Everybody there is there to find the things and the people that they love. And because of that, it is the most welcoming, the safest place I have ever been. Truly, I cannot properly explain just how wonderful that feeling is. So I'll be there. Destination Venus will be there. We have a, a tiny table. We never take a big table. Uh, there are bigger comics shops than us who will be there. We see no reason to compete with them. We, well, not least because they'd win if we did. Uh, the whole thing is actually sort of run by people from Traveling Man, which is a Leeds-based chain of comic shops. And honestly, probably where I'd shop if I didn't own my own store. And they're always there with a huge range of graphic novels and stuff like that. So, you know, best I simply don't see any point in competing with them. So I don't. Uh, what I do is take a whole bunch of back issues and stuff and, you know, mostly pimp my store. So you can come and see us. But, I mean, don't come specially. Spend the time instead 
wandering around. Just wander up and talk to people behind the tables. One of the things that even at Thought Bubble can be an issue is that everybody kind of walks down the middle of the aisle and tries to avoid making eye contact with the people behind the tables because they don't want to get into an embarrassing situation where they talk to somebody and then don't buy anything. Well, do you know what? Don't worry about it. Talk to people. If you like their stuff, you can buy it. If you can't afford their stuff, you can not buy it, and that's also fine. If you don't like their stuff, you can politely move on. Nobody minds, and as long as you're not hogging people's time and not buying stuff and and keeping people away from potentially paying customers, people are happy to chat. That's why they're there. They want to talk about their work. They want to talk about comics. That's what we all love to do. So seriously, don't feel like you have to kind of not bother people. They're there to be bothered. That's what they want. And you've got two days. So take your time. There's no rush. Stop. Admire. Enjoy. Chat. I do very much recommend going for the two days because it really, really is incredibly difficult to do the thing justice just in one day. There is so much to do. And if all that were not enough, there is even the mid-con party, which happens on the Saturday night, and which I do not go to because I am old, but which is a thing of legend and which folk can go to if, you know, that's your idea of a good time. It is no longer mine. It was never mine. I don't like being in a party situation. It's just me. Uh, also, one of the things to keep an eye on, I'm wondering where it's going to happen this year. Well, one of the things that's happened every year since Thought Bubble moved to Harrogate is they've had the Majestic Hotel as sort of the official convention hotel. It's, it's very handy for the convention centre, as Harrogate residents will know. And one of the things that happened from 2019 onwards is comics folk developed a bit of an obsession with the gents' toilets in the, in the Majestic, which are, I have to say, a magnificent thing. I mean, they're amazing. They're visually just very impressive. And so every year when Thought Bubbles rolled into town, comics Twitter has exploded with images taken in the gents' toilets at the Majestic Hotel. Now, as you will have noticed if you've been following the news elsewhere on this show and indeed previous shows, lots of folk have abandoned Twitter. So I wonder if the online community in comics will be posting pictures of the majestic gents toilets anywhere else i look forward to seeing because honestly that was a, a great tradition it's one of the, one of my favorite things about twitter really so anyway that is thought bubble there'll be more on thought bubble over the next couple of weeks but we'll probably leave that there for now because i've been talking about it for nearly 20 minutes and that means it is time to move on now, you may have noticed that I have been promising for some time to go back to the little series that I started about Werner von Braun and the beginnings of the Apollo program. Well, honestly, I promise, I promise, I promise, I promise. I, look, it's recorded and I was going to drop it into this week's episode, but now we haven't got time again because I spent too much time talking about stuff. So um, next week, almost certainly, we will drop 
that in. But we do have time for a wonderful woman of science. And so come with me to the Bronx. It's December the 18th, 1922. And Esther Miriam Zimmer is born to a family of Orthodox Jews. Her father, David, an immigrant from Romania who ran a print shop, and her mother, Pauline Geller Zimmer. Uh, she would eventually have a brother, uh, Benjamin, who would be born in 1923. Um, she's a child of the Great Depression. Uh, she's not going to have a an affluent childhood. Uh, as she grows, lunch will often be a piece of bread topped with the juice of a squeezed tomato. But she'll learn Hebrew and become proficient enough to conduct Passover seders. And she'll attend the Evander Childs High School in the Bronx, uh, from where she will graduate, aged 15, in 1938. She's a bright kid, and she will go on to win a scholarship to attend New York City's Hunter College in the autumn of 1938. Initially, she'll want to study French, or maybe literature. But against the recommendations of her teachers, who felt that a woman would have great difficulty pursuing a career in sciences, she will switch her major to biochemistry. Not just chemistry, but biochemistry. Because she really fell for the subject. Um, she went on to work as a research assistant at the New York Botanical Gardens uh, and began some research into uh, a plant called Neurospora crassa. Um, alongside uh, the plant pathologist Bernard Ogilvy Dodge, about whom I know literally nothing. I did try and look him up, and I didn't really come up with very, very much. But she will graduate uh, cum laude in 1942 at the age of 19 with a bachelor's degree in genetics. When she graduates from Hunter, uh, Zimmer goes on to work as a research assistant to Alexander Hollander, at the Carnegie Institute in Washington, which became the Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory, uh, which I've heard of. Uh, and she continued to work uh, on uh, the N-Crasser stuff she, and published her first work in genetics, which probably contributed to her winning a fellowship in 1944 to attend Stanford University, uh, working as an, assist, as an assistant to uh, George Wells Beadle and Edward Tatum, who I had to look up, but they're big deals. Uh, when she asked Tatum to teach her genetics, he was initially un unwilling to do that. Um, but he got her to work out why, in a bottle of Drosophila fruit flies, one fly had different coloured eyes than the others. Once she'd proved herself by working that out, um, Tatum actually gave her a job as his teaching assistant. Uh, from there, she travelled to, to uh, California and spent a, a summer at Stanford studying um, at, Hop, at the Hopkins Marine Station under Cornelius Van Neel, who, again, I had to look up. But again, bit of a big deal. Um, then she entered a master's program in the study of genetics, uh, and she took her master's from Stanford in 1946. Her master's thesis was entitled Mutant Strains of Neurospora Deficient in Paro- Aminobenzoic acid. I am 
really sorry to any scientists listening if I've butchered the pronunciation of that. That year, she married a man called Joshua Lederberg and um, therefore became Esther Lederberg. Joshua Lederberg um, was a student at of Tatum's uh, at Yale, uh, and he moved to the Osborne Botanical Laboratory, which was part of Yale, uh, and from there to the University of Wisconsin. Um, and Esther followed him there. They were married. It was kind of what you had to do. And there at Wisconsin, she began her doctorate degree. Between 1946 and 1949, uh, she was awarded a pre-doctoral fellowship by the National Cancer Institute. Her thesis was on genetic control of mutability in the bacterium. Honestly, I've only seen this written down. So again, I'm really sorry if I'm butchering this. Escherichia coli. I'm very confident about the coli bit. And she completed a doctorate in 1950. So here we have a woman who's come from very, very impoverished circumstances and has, through education, really, in the 1930s, 40s and 50s, which were not known for their enlightened attitudes to uh, women doing science. And she'd earned herself a doctorate. Uh, she remained at the University of Wisconsin for most of the 50s. Um, where she did a lot of really important work on a whole bunch of stuff that I frankly don't understand. Uh, she was basically very much involved in bacteriophages. These are like antibiotics, they kill bacteria, uh, but they're much more specific. But basically, a phage is anything that eats something else. So a bacteriophage eats bacteria. That means you don't get antibiotic resistance with phages. And phages are, they went out of style a little bit when antibiotics became, you know, the thing. But now with antibiotic resistance becoming an, an issue, phages are back in style. And Lederberg's work might end up saving us all. So, anyway, uh, she's studying the, the bacteriophages. And, and with her husband, she did some incredibly important work. Now, this is where I would love to explain what that work was and why it's significant. I'm afraid I can't. I have read many, many, many sources this week trying to understand exactly what it is that she did. And I'm just going to be right up front. I am no biologist, clearly, very clearly. I, I am beginning to learn how little of a biologist I am. Uh, I don't understand one word in 15. Uh, so if you want to know exactly what she did and why it's important, apart from the fact um, that she was working on phages and stuff, um, I'm going to encourage you to um, to look it up. And maybe you'll you'll understand it better than I do. Anyway, a bunch of stuff happened. Um, her husband, Joshua Lederberg, um, did get the Nobel Prize for the work that I don't understand. She was not even referenced in the award. Some have said that she suffered slightly in terms of reputation because she was married to and working with an exceptional man. I mean, Joshua Lederberg. I don't want to take anything away from him. You know, he produced incredible work. But because of the attitudes of the time, it therefore became very easy for the establishment to look at their joint work and assume that the bloke did it. Now, I, I can only imagine that there were some conversations between Mr. and Mrs. Lederberg about how that was going to go down and whether they were going to tolerate that or not. I, I, I make no judgment on either of them 
for not having made more of an effort to correct the record. Uh, the fact remains, we know that she did, you know, a, a, a huge amount of the work that he was credited for. Uh, he didn't actually try and take the credit himself. Again, you know, just, just to set that record straight. Uh, I think they just accepted that it was probably too much like hard work to tr to keep correcting people. And that's one of the things I really want to emphasise with these wonderful Women of Science segments. It's not just about going, oh, look, women did some stuff. It's about pointing out that this is what happens. This is how women get left out of things. Because it was the work that was important to Esther and Joshua, they didn't make a fuss about the attribution. It was enough for them that the work was published and recognised. And so when, you know, awards committees and such assumed it was all him, they didn't argue. And that's happened quite a lot. And that means that women get overlooked. It's never been the fact that women couldn't or didn't do science. It's more often been the fact, and we've seen this with other wonderful women of science that we've covered in the past, Caroline Herschel springs to mind, that they get overshadowed by the men that work with them, whether that's, in Herschel's case, her brother, or in Ladybird's case, her husband, uh, not because the men are better, not even because the men are trying to take the credit, but just because society gives them that credit. Now, we are society. And we should do better. So talk about Esther Lederberg when you're perhaps discussing antibiotic resistance and things we might do to deal with that. And we will move on. We're running out of time. So um, I will just head over to the Geek Community Notice Board. And I've got a self-serving thing to put in. Um, this Saturday is the closest Saturday to Halloween that we're open. Actually, it's kind of... Actually, no, it is, isn't it? It is the closest Saturday to Halloween. Um, so we are doing the Halloween Comic Fest. I will have a bunch of comics, special Halloween Fest comics to give away completely free. Uh, there's only a, there's, there's four or five titles, Marvel stuff. No purchase necessary. Just come and get some free comics. Comics are awesome. I like to give them away sometimes. And because I happened to be away on the day that DC Comics designates as Batman Day, I didn't give away any of the Batman comics at that time. So if you want some free Batman comics, also Saturday is the time to come and get them. Again, completely free, no purchase necessary, no no pack drill, no nothing, no obligation. Just come and get some free comics. Under the stairs at the Everyman Cinema, we will be open from 11am. Uh, and yeah, just come, get some free comics. It'll be awesome. As always, uh, I will also point you at the Geek Pub Quiz. And I will point you at Thought Bubble. Uh, do check out the Thought Bubble itinerary on their website. Uh, if you just go to thoughtbubble.com, thoughtbubblefestival.com, just Google Thought Bubble 2023, you'll find it. Because whilst the only thing that's really happening in Harrogate is the con and the things that are happening over convention weekend, there is a whole bunch of other stuff happening all over Yorkshire, some of which... Even if you're Harrogate-based, you might be able to easily get to, apart from anything else, quite a lot of stuff that's going on is going on in Leeds. And Leeds is not that far away. Also, very, very quick mention, uh, the North York Moors Dark Skies Festival is happening from the 27th of October. That's tomorrow, if you listen to this, the day it drops, until the 5th of November. I don't have a huge amount of details. 
but Google that, the North York Moors Dark Skies Festival, to take advantage of North Yorkshire's beautiful dark skies. And we don't even have time for me to tell you to, to be kind to yourself and everybody else right now. We are out of time. Stay geeky. See you next week. <laughs>